In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. The fifth article of faith states, We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority, to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. While the topic of the ordinances or sacraments of the Church of Jesus Christ can be discussed in very great detail over the course of many episodes, we will do our best to introduce the differences between the ordinances of the LDS Church and the ordinances of the Christian Church. We are Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist squirrel Jedi, Michael, the ex-Mormon Mr. Hyde apologist, and Grand Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Historically, there have been differences in opinion on how many ordinances or sacraments there are, what purposes they serve, etc. Is this something that we should worry about? Does this disrupt the unity of the one, the quote, one holy Catholic, lowercase c, meaning universal, and apostolic church, unquote, that we affirm to belong to according to the earliest Christian creeds? Uh, I forget who started last time, so I'll go with Michael. Okay, I think it is my turn anyway. Um... All right. So, is this is this something to worry about? I don't think that it is something that we need to worry about. Um, I actually really like the the differences in some of the churches and and you know there's there's things that just aren't spelled out 100 percent in the Bible. So, I'm um, I'm really okay with it. I think the only time where I would start to get a little bit concerned is if somebody was going to the point of saying that Christ wasn't sufficient. Uh, that we weren't saved by uh, f- by grace alone through faith alone. If I saw something going beyond the scope of that, then I might be a little bit concerned. But otherwise, I don't have a problem with it. I'm trying to see if you asked me something else there. Um, does this disrupt the unity of the one holy Catholic Church? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's a problem. I don't think it disrupts the unity at all. I think it's just a uh, just a unique style of of worship and and theology and it's it's uh, all under the umbrella of christianity okay awesome uh, how about you paul so my my answer is kind of short should we think about it yes should we reason it out yes should we discuss it yes should we seek unity on it yes can it disrupt unity yes as 
can anything that a person allows to come between them and another believer. Um, I'm, I'm with Michael. I think that there are some interesting things like as I've, I did some comparisons this week between, uh, you know, looking at each of the, uh, each of the, the major, um, branches of, of historic Christianity, uh, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox and Protestant, uh, and then comparing that with the Latter-day Saint views in terms of number of ordinances and purposes and all that kind of stuff. And that was some interesting stuff that I can kind of touch on later. But um, I think one of the interesting things I noted is that, you know, there's, there's differences that are interesting. So like uh, confirmation, right, is one where um, there's, there's definitely a difference. Is that, is that a New Testament ordinance or is it not? Um, and there are questions around that, that, that are interesting to think about and reason through. So, but I think I'll touch on, on that a little bit more later. Okay, cool. Um, and if questions come to your mind, you know, that might make a good discussion, you can just let me know. Mm-hmm. If, uh, uh, so- if my church, um, has a uh, sacrament of doing circumcision, is that bad? I'll just, uh, refer you to Galatians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Oh so. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. That. I know I wouldn't go to a church and do that. Wait, are they doing it to adults? Uh, yeah, hypothetically. <laughs> um, but yeah, this. So I'm not sure how much I had thoughts in mind of things to talk about in this question. It's fascinating to me to read so much difference in Christianity historically over the ordinances, and technically the real first disruption of uh, denominational lines, I guess you could call it, was over the subject of the Lord's Supper. Uh, It goes back to Martin Luther and uh, Ulrich Zwingli. So they had written letters to each other about each other's positions of what exactly the Lord's Supper was and what it conveyed and what it represented and what was actually there. What were you actually consuming? So it's interesting because I don't know about baptism. I haven't studied that quite a little bit, but I've been reading in uh, Herman Bavink. He was a Dutch reform guy. He's got a really solid uh, systematic texts, like four volumes, the uh, reform dogmatics. And he talks about, about Zwingli and how he's kind of been maligned as seeing, oh, the Lord's Supper, it's literally just eating bread and it's just a remembrance, you know, nothing happens. But really, he talks about how Zwingli did believe in spiritual presence in the Lord's Supper. And so that's pretty fascinating to me because a lot of people have said, well, he, you know, he just thought I was just eating bread, nothing happened. But really, that's that's not quite correct. He did believe in uh, the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but he saw the Lord's Supper more as kind of like, um, kind of like more of a profession of faith on the one who receives it. And I can't remember all the the tiny details, but that's pretty much how he saw it. He saw it as partaking of the Lord's Supper was kind of your affirmation in your faith in Christ, similar to how you respond positive, positively to preaching or hearing the word. It's kind of along that lines. Um, and Martin Luther, he believed that Christ was physically present in the supper. Now, the difference between Martin Luther's view and the Roman Catholic view is the Roman Catholic view kind of goes back to these, excuse me, these kind of uh, Aristotelian categories where you have accidents and substance. So, accidents are what something appears to be, and substance is kind of what it actually is. But you can't really see the substance, you only see the accidents. So, Roman Catholic theology, especially around the time of... Uh, Oh, man. Oh, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course. He kind of developed this idea, this Aristotelian idea of when you bless the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine, when they start out, they, they have the accidents of bread and wine and the substance of bread and wine. But when they're blessed by a priest, and they say in the Latin, hoc ad est 
enim corpus meum, this is my body, it literally transforms the substance of the Lord's Supper into the body and blood of Christ, both the, the, the bread and the wine. And so the substance is completely changed. There's no substance of the bread and wine left, but the accidents remain. So it looks like bread and wine, it tastes like bread and wine, but it its substance is the body and blood physically of Christ. So that differs from Martin Luther's view in the sense that he believed that when you bless it, when you say those words, you know, you're still saying this is my body. So he believed that there is some kind of sacramental, something sacramental happening, whether he would call it a transformation. I'm not quite sure what terminology he would have used, but you're actually physically, the, the physical presence of Christ is in the Lord's Supper. However, it's not replacing the substance of the, the bread and wine. It's kind of kind of added to it. And there's a term that Reformed and other historians use of his doctrine, and Lutherans hate it. I'm just going to mention it, so sorry to our Lutheran uh, listeners. But uh, Reformed have historically called it consubstantiation, con meaning like with, and substantiation meaning substance. So the the body and blood of Christ are are with the substance of the bread and wine. Um, they don't use that terminology. They call it real presence. Um, so anyways, th- this was the distinction between their two views that really separated the Reformation in the beginning, and it, they wrote letters to each other, and they were very, very strongly opposed to each other's view. And it wasn't until the Marburg Colloquy, which was in 1529, I had to pull that up because I forgot what year it was, when they finally had that meeting. And it's it's the it's the iconic meeting where you see a painting, and whether this happened or not, we don't know. But etched on it was the Latin "Hoc ad est enim corpus meum." This is my body, and Luther just kept pounding on it. You know, he just kept saying that over and over and over again. Uh, because he said, you know, his view is that the body is physically there. So how, you know, the words are so clear. So why don't you believe it? You know, it's, it was kind of a sign of Christians struggling to understand the opposing side. I think nowadays we have a little bit more understanding or, you know, a little bit more grace, I think, between the denominational lines. But back then it was very, he very firmly believed in that. And that was the first time that really the Reformation kind of split a little bit in terms of, you know, they, they couldn't see each other having fellowship uh, in terms of worship services, because one thought that Christ was physically present in the supper, and one thought that he was only spiritually present. And then Calvin, John Calvin, he kind of had a middle way where he believed that you do become united to the body and blood of Christ, but it's not through a local physical presence, meaning Jesus Christ's physical body and blood are not in the supper itself, but you're sacramentally united to the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. And because you cannot, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're united to the spiritual presence of Christ, you're united also to his physical body. So it's kind of like lifting our bodies up to heaven, lifting us spiritually to heaven in the heavenly places to become united to the entire person of Christ, including the benefits of his body and blood that were that were shed on the cross. So he had kind of a middle view sort of between the two. But I, like I, I studied that recently and I was just fascinated by all the different views. And, and I'm like, oh, I can kind of see Zwingli's view. You know, that kind of makes sense. And I'm like, oh, well, Luther makes a lot of sense too, you know. But um, but ultimately, I think I think Cal- I still hold to Calvin's view. Um, but yeah, to me, it's fascinating. I don't think it disrupts unity in the sense of the universal church of all believers. But it does cause us to have denominational differences because I can understand why. Because if you if you believe that you're consuming literally the physical body and blood of Christ orally, you know, locally, and someone believes something totally different, it's hard to really have 100% um, communion. Do you know what I mean? Because the that's what communion represents is. You know, communing with Christ, and if you feel you're communing with Christ a different way than somebody else, I can understand why they would not want to do that. Me personally, if I were in a Lutheran church, I would have no problem taking the Lord's Supper 
in my own view, because just because we have different opinions of what is actually happening in the Lord's Supper, it doesn't mean that, you know, that I don't think that we should be able to share it together. It's kind of like reading the Bible. It's similar to that. It's like we read the same Bible, and just because we disagree on what it means, it doesn't mean like I have to tell the other person, oh, you can't read the Bible because your view doesn't agree with me. We both read the same Bible, so I think if we partake of the same Lord's Supper, you know, we might have different views of what it means, but we're still communing with each other and with Christ. As far as bat, as far as oh, sorry, go ahead. Did you have something oh, you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I just the thought popped into my head too because I was like, man, I I feel exactly the same way as you, Matthew. If I was if I was in a Lutheran church, I'd have no problem partaking of communion either because you know, regardless of what our beliefs are, only one thing is happening. I mean, it's not like in a Catholic church it really is becoming the blood and flesh of Christ, but in in Lutheranism. You know, it's just a real presence, and, you know, it it changes depending on the denomination. Like, there really is just one objective truth out there. So, you know, regardless of where I take it, it's still doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, I've I've mentioned before um, that I'm going to hold grudges against Michael for disagreeing with me, and I'm I'm definitely going to do that. Um, But I I (laughs) want (laughs) to— No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I've, I've mentioned before that um, you know one of the, one of the things about the American Restoration Movement that that has kind of been important to me is this idea that um, you know we're we're Christians only. We're not the only Christians, and and an openness to seeking understanding and seeking unity with fellow believers um, beyond denominational lines. And obviously, the you know the Restoration movement churches aren't perfect at that you know they've split over musical instruments and and you know various other things and and if, and of course there have been you know people within the restoration movement who have been stridently you know anti-denominational and um you know that 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 certainly is part of the history but uh, this idea that you know we're christians only we're not the only christians has been um it's been important to me in in working through things and when you were talking matthew about um, Holdrick Zwingli and and Luther and their disagreements over um, the Lord's Supper. You know, I I think it's it, from a historical standpoint, it's interesting because they're both kind of wrestling through. Okay, now now that we are kind of um, looking to reform the Catholic Church and and in some ways move beyond it. Now what? Right. That those are the questions they're they're kind of wrestling with. Um, what what do we believe about the Lord's Supper? What do we believe about baptism and, and what goes on in those in those sacraments or ordinances? And you know, the three of us are kind of doing something similar, right? We've come out of the Latter Day Saint faith, and we're we're thinking through now what, right? With with regards to these things, and so like like I said, I'm definitely going to hold grudges against Michael, um, but tonight I'm going to seek unity. So. <laughs> Well, thank you for bearing the hatchet. I, I wasn't going to have to moderate uh, a fight. If you want to do that next week, you know, we can plan for it. I, I don't know that I want to fight him. <laughs> I mean, I did see that video with the guns. I'm already going to have my hands full with younger Mormon Michael, so I don't want to make any other enemies. So <laughs> I'm not looking to pick a fight either. Just remember, if you like, if you were to pull like a... Uh, a Mike Tyson, you know, Evander Holyfield, and you bite off your younger self's ear, you know, 
It's going to be like Back <laughs> to the Future style, where your future ear is going to fall off. <laughs> oh, great. So you're saying I can't hurt him because anything I do to him hurts me. So, yep. <laughs> so that's what happened to his hair. <laughs> no! <laughs> Covered his head in acid or something? <laughs> Just tore it out. <laughs> okay. Mm, burritos. <laughs> So what are your views now on the ordinances? Do you think that would be good to talk about? We kind of kind of already mentioned it. Um, uh, Paul, I already said you were kind of wrestling through some passages still. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to talk more about that? Yeah, so, um, so with regards to baptism, um, you know, the Latter-day Saint view is that it's the gate that places you on the path to eternal life, right? And then there's other ordinances that you complete along that path, um, which is, is fairly similar to uh, the Roman Catholic view, right? Baptism is the gate or door to the church and all of the other uh, sacraments that the church has to offer. Um, and, you know, thinking through biblically, you know, what does, what, what is baptism and, and why do, why should a believer be baptized? What does does God work in baptism? And if so, what is the work that God does in baptism? Um, you know, you, you think about like Acts 2, right? Uh, Peter, uh, the, the people, the men that he's preaching to are pricked in their hearts and they ask him, what shall we do to be saved? Um, you know, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Um, so, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So then, you know, the question is, you know, okay, so baptism um, there's something with regard to the remission of sins that's related to baptism. Um, is that is that something that God does um, in terms of forgiving sins uh, and applying the the grace that uh, Jesus uh, merited on all of our behalves, uh, all believers' behalves on the cross? Is that is that something that that God applies to believer to the believer in baptism? Uh, is that how you read Acts to? Um, Romans six, uh, also, you know, kind of touches on baptism. Um, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, you know, so that raises the question is, is baptism the time at which uh, a believer is born again? Um, or is that something that happens uh, at, a, at a different time? So um, those questions are things I still am wrestling through, uh, and again, I'm I'm working to uh, understand what what the Word of God says about these things. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the theologies and positions of the various you know historic Christian denominations are are interesting, um, but I I really do seek to get back to the Word and and what the Word says, and and that's that's where I want to lay my foundation. So um, right now I, I, I do kind of view baptism as the time at which a person is born again. It's the time at which, you know, God does the work of justification in the believer. Um, I, I wholly affirm that uh, salvation is by grace alone. Um, it's not, it doesn't come to a believer because they decide to be baptized. It comes to a believer because God works and God keeps his promises and God is faithful. And so um, I, I recognize that my view may be a little bit different than than Matthew's or you know, yours, Matthew, or yours, Michael, and I'm okay with that. Um, like I said, I think we're all kind of wrestling through 
the what now questions after after Mormonism. Um, the other, you know, the the two uh, kind of main Protestant uh, ordinances or sacraments are, are baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Um, and I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's questions about like is is confirmation a New Testament ordinance? Um, if you look at historic Christianity, you know, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox uh, both uh, do uh, confirmation or chrismation, chrismation in the Eastern Church. Um, but as I as I've studied out the you know what what what's the scriptural basis for those for those uh, rites? It's it's based in the Old Testament rather more so rather than the, the New Testament, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, Matthew, with the, the washing and anointing of the, of the, um, you know, the temple ordinances in the LDS church are, are kind of, you thought, referred back to Aaron, right, and the, and the temple, so, or the tabernacle. So um, that's kind of the same way, same justification that I found within, you know, the, the uh, Roman Catholic view and, and Eastern Orthodox view. Um, but you know, interestingly, if you if you talk with Latter Day Saints about um, you know that's one of the things I'll bring up is you know that uh, Protestants don't uh, they don't lay hands on for the gift of the Holy Ghost, right? And they, they point to the New Testament passages uh, like uh, Acts eight and Acts nineteen. Um, but interestingly, in 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 those instances, um, the the laying on of hands seems to convey uh, rather than. The gift of the Holy Ghost. It seems to convey um, special gifts, right? Uh, like like speaking in tongues, and, and we'll we'll, we'll um, touch on those later, but in other episodes. But uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a, a New Testament precedent for this idea of confirmation for reception of the Holy Ghost. So I don't uh, I don't hold to that. Yeah, that's a great point because um, Acts nineteen, I think, is the one where it talks about those who were baptized unto John's baptism. Right. And then Paul teaches them and then baptizes them and then lays hands on them and then they, yeah. It's, like you said, I, I also understand it to mean that, that they were given, many of those who were converted at that time, when it says that they received the Spirit, a lot of times that meant that they received tongues or prophesying, that kind of thing. And it was God's outward demonstration that he was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That he was uh, vouching for? Uh Sanctioning, I guess sanctioning, maybe that works. That God was kind of sanctioning the conversion of this person, you know. And then we see we see even Gentiles speaking in tongues before they're even baptized. So, and I think I think that we use this a lot in the LDS uh, in the discussion forums because it says how, why, why did these people receive the Spirit before they were even baptized? So mm-hmm. when we see the Gentiles receiving the Spirit and speaking in tongues even before they were water baptism. And then it's asked, well, what is preventing them from being baptized? So, and then they're baptized. So, yeah, I don't think it has to go in that order of water baptism, confirmation to receive the Holy Ghost, because mm-hmm. they received it even before they were baptized. Right. So, I, I think that's I think that's accurate. Yeah, uh, and Acts 19 specifically says, you know, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, uh, it, it it specifically points out that that what. Uh, what they received then was a, was a, spe- a special um, administration of the Holy Spirit, not the not the gift of the Holy Spirit that's promised to believers. Um, and then Acts, you know, Acts A is the other one that that gets pointed to a lot. You know, Simon uh, when he sees the the apostles laying on hands, he asks for that power, right? And and Latter Day Saints points to that and say, see, he was asking for the for the priesthood power, 
right? But what, what, what was it that made him ask for it, right? It's not stated explicitly like at like Acts 19, but you, you can assume that um, he must have seen something similar, like the, the people who were having hands laid on them were speaking in tongues or having other some other or prophesying, some other um, miraculous uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit, right? That um, that would make him want to have that that power. It was it wasn't just you know he saw some guys lay hands on other people. There was something that happened that made him say, "Oh, I want that. I want to be able to do that." Right? So. Um, that's that's an interesting thing about Acts 8. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for it to fit the LDS paradigm, you have to fill in the gaps with something that the text doesn't say. If you just go with what the text says, it doesn't say, well, they were all ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood, which is what you need in order to perform baptism and confirmation, et cetera, et cetera. But they kind of mm-hmm. just fill that in the gaps because that's what they're taught. And that's what they right. already believe. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Michael? I mean, yeah, I'm listening to a lot of what Paul's saying, and I mean, he's absolutely right that you know, baptism is is mentioned very strongly all through the scriptures. And I was thinking about that exact same passage, too, where, you know, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, not just that, but it's part of the Great Commission, you know, go out and, and you know, baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, and then, you know, Mark 16, 16, you know, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that, that believeth not shall be damned. And I remember having a discussion with uh, a guy named Craig Hazen. Um, he teaches at Biola University. And, you know, I met him in California, and he's kind of saying, like, hey, you know, it never mentions people who who believe and aren't baptized. And his reasoning was that if you are a believer, you will get baptized. You know, kind of saying that people who, who believe and, and don't get baptized, like, they don't exist, kind of was his, his logic there. And... Um, I think that's definitely given me a lot of a lot of pause. And another thing that we we talk about a lot in the in the forums is you know it comes up all the time, right? The thief on the cross. Well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, but you know Christ still told him that he would be with him in paradise. And I remember on my mission, I got into this debate with like seven evangelicals at the same time. And they brought that up to me, and I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, the thief on the cross didn't have time to get baptized, but, you know, say hypothetically you get saved today, and then Christ comes back in 10 years and you haven't been baptized. Are you still going to be saved? And they all hesitated for a minute, and then they said, yes, we would still be saved. So I'm, I do kind of, I'm on the fence with a lot of the stuff too, still trying to to wrap my mind around all of it because I mean Christ did did tell us to get baptized and to baptize all nations and that's the struggle with saying that it's just symbolic is it's like if it's just symbolic then it doesn't need to be done but it seems like there is quite an emphasis on it and so you know I do get a little bit hesitant or I guess squeamish when you know I hear about somebody who's a believer but you know they've been a believer for 10 years and they haven't been baptized and I don't know, maybe you guys feel the same way, or I don't know if I'm just out in left field on that. No, I definitely agree. It makes me, doesn't make me question their salvation, but it makes me want to ask them why. You know, I want to know, I would have to ask them questions why they, they don't feel baptism is, is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I also noted that, that Michael just really casually name dropped Craig Hayes. I'm like, yeah, I know Craig Hayes, and I met him, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I do that sometimes. You know, when you guys aren't around, I'm like, yeah, I know Paul Nuremberg and Matthew. I'm really looking forward to recording a podcast like two years from now. And you're like, yeah, so, you know, after uh, Kanye got off stage, you know, I gave my, my presentation. I'll be like, what? <laughs> No, it was, it was funny because I, uh, I met Craig Hazen on my mission because some of our investigators brought us over to his house so that we could get destroyed in a debate. So it was, it was good times. No, I won that debate. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough one. <clears throat> Looking up an email address for Craig Hazen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, a, it's an interesting that you brought that up, actually. It kind of derailed my train of thought. It's it's interesting to talk about why would someone reject the ordinances. And I think that's something you could even dive into really deeply. Uh, maybe I don't. Maybe I shouldn't na- mention his name on the podcast. It might trigger some people or, or something. But, um, you know, when I was first leaving Mormonism and trying to figure out where I was supposed to go, I watched a lot of Sean McCraney. And, uh, 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 sorry, that was me being triggered. I was... <laughs> <laughs> I was I, I wasn't wow, always... that's pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, is, are, are, you, are you okay? Do you need like a, a breathalyzer or an oxygen tank or a CPR or something? Are you, you good? Know, I, I think I'm okay now. Yeah, it was it was close. I saw my life flash before my eyes when you said that name. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I said breathalyzer. I'm like, wait a minute, why did I say that? Does that mean he's drunk? <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mentioned that just because like I was reading and watching lots of different stuff, you know, trying to get ideas. And he kind of felt like his view is like baptism is, you know, it's good, but you don't have to have it. So, you know, you don't you don't really need it. He didn't really make it seem that important. And then the, as time went on, I kind of learned why he feels that way, because he is a hyper preterist, meaning all the prophecies in scripture were fulfilled in AD 70. So there's no visible church. There's no elders or deacons. You you know, there's technically no official baptism or Lord's Supper. You know, all that's done with pretty much. So that's, you know, and, and, I, and I think historically the church has kind of viewed hyperpreterism as something that does separate people from the Orthodox faith because mm-hmm. it, it denies Christ's physical return to the earth and physical resurrection. They believe mm-hmm. that there is no physical resurrection. And I think that's beyond the line so that's why if someone were to say well i don't want to be baptized or i don't think we need to be baptized and i don't want to then i would have to ask them why because if they go into that camp it's like okay um you know nice guy but i (laughs) you know can't call him my brother Mm. so um yeah i thought that was an interesting uh kind of um comment you made there yeah yeah i mean it was like when I became a believer and started going attending a church, I mean, it was really just right away, maybe within the you know a week or two, where I just felt so convicted, and you know, it's like, man, I I'm not going to be happy until I get into the waters of baptism. Like I just wanted to do it so bad. So I agree. I'd, I'd want to know why somebody doesn't want to do it. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in that. And when you were talking to your friend, I forget uh, exactly who, that said that normally there weren't Christians that weren't baptized. Who was that again? Um, that was Elder Holland, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, Craig Hazen. Another name drop. All right. <laughs> yeah, same name drop, but yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to mention, um, so before before I was baptized, I think I finished it before I was baptized. Maybe not. Maybe it was shortly after, but... Uh, my pastors gave me a book. It's called Life in the Father's House, a, a Member's Guide to the Local Church. And it's written by 
one Reformed Baptist and one Presbyterian. So it's pretty cool because, like I said, Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians share a lot of theology, but we do differ on some things. Um, but it's a really great book. I really recommend it, whether you're Reformed or not. Um, it talks about the importance of the visible church, uh, going to church, you know, being united to a body, being have your name on the church rolls in a church somewhere, you know, not just casually going church to church to church. Um, it's good for it's important for you and for the pastors because the pastors are their pastors. They they watch over a flock, and if they don't know who their flock is, how are they supposed to lead them? How are they supposed to protect them and nurture their spiritual growth? So that's why they're really advocated for becoming a member of a local church, and I think that's really important. But they also mentioned that the ordinances are just so important. And when you do read the scriptures, there is validity to that, to this idea that there are no really examples other than the, the thief on the cross of Christians who did not submit to baptism in, in scripture. Uh, I, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, it's so linked. When you, when you see the conversion process, you see the word being preached. You see uh, people being, you know, convicted. They were, you know, they show signs of repentance. They exercise faith in Christ. Uh, they're baptized and they're joined to a local body of believers. You know, it's like it's all contained. You can't have one part without the other. And so that's why I think I think baptism really is essential. Um, I mean, not essential to your eternal life in in the sense of without exclusion. If you're not baptized, you can't go to, to heaven. I'm not saying that. But I think it really is important for your spiritual growth. And I think normally um, there is no salvation outside the church in the sense that it's extenuating circumstances normally that should allow for someone to not be baptized, to not be part of the local church, you know, to be kind of like a Christian on the outskirts that isn't connected to a body. I think that is an extenuating circumstances, but the normal means of of remain, you know, of, of Christian life is in the church. So it's like cutting yourself off from the vine. If you're not baptized, if you're not in the church, if you're not active, if you're not fellowshipping. So I think normally that is true, that you, you do need to be part of the church. But again, like there are extenuating circumstances. And even Lutherans who say that baptism is necessary for salvation, they'll say it's not absolutely necessary, meaning that you can be saved, you can be regenerated, uh, you know, through faith, uh, through faith alone. You can be justified. But, you know, they say it's necessary, meaning like it's so important. If you have the chance, you got to do it. Um and I agree with that. And I and I and my personally, I, I believe that there's debate as to who can give the ordinances. We might talk more about that later with priesthood, but I'll just quickly mention Second Corinthians three. Uh, Paul is kind of you know they're kind of doubting the apostles' authority. You know they're trying they're listening to other people who are claiming to be the super apostles. So he kind of has to like reassert his authority and say what what else do I need to prove to you that I you know that I have authority? Do I need to give you letters of recommendation? Uh, etc., etc. So then he says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 3, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So I think there's passages like that um, that indicate that baptism normally, in a normal church setting, should be given by elders or pastors. Um, I, I don't know about deacons. I'm not sure how that works in there exactly, but normally elders and pastors. But of course, like missionary circumstances, that's a different thing, I think. But normally that's reserved for elders because they are also ministers of the new covenant. They, I believe that elders do have authority. Now, it's not absolute authority. You know, They can't rule with an iron fist. They're always submitting to the word of God. And if they go against the word of God, you know, they basically... Um, lose that authority, but we—I do believe that there is authority in the office of, of elder or pastor. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the efficacy of baptism, 
Yeah, I definitely don't think it's merely symbolic. And there are several passages, interestingly enough, that uh, speaking with Lutherans, it kind of made me, that kind of grew that 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 sentiment even stronger. And you, you already mentioned Romans 6, Paul. Um, I'll also mention uh, 1 Peter 3, because that's a passage that they often, they often show and say, well, why don't you believe that baptism saves you? So this passage is really difficult to understand. Peter is like, he's like one of those genius guys that's on some other level. And even the greatest Greek scholars really struggle to, under, to keep track, you know, to understand what, what Peter is saying because he goes, he, he kind of jumps around a lot and he makes connections and it's hard to really follow him a little bit. Um, so this is one of the most contested passages. I just want to read it quickly. Uh, starting with verse 18 in First Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So I'm not going to get in spirits of prison. We'll talk about that later with temples. But here's the part that's really important. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, um, speaking of um, Noah being saved through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So, Lutherans really push this passage and say, baptism saves you, it justifies you, it regenerates you, all of that. So, they believe that in baptism, it does give the gift of faith to infants, it, give, it grants them salvation, regeneration, justification, and as long as they continue in the faith and exercise faith in Christ, they will keep that salvation, but if they deny the faith, they will lose that salvation. I don't believe that, that baptism itself conveys salvation. What it says here is, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So, there isn't like an active current um, tense here. It now saves you. So, I don't think it's saying... Oh, it justifies you in terms of a one-time event in the past. You know, we, we can speak of salvation in terms of past tense where God saved us, justified us, where he saves us, you know, sanctifies us and uh, grows us in faith and will save us, meaning when we're glorified, we'll be completely saved from, we'll be completely taken from the effects of sin. So, we'll be, the sin nature will be gone, we'll have no more sins, we'll be completely purified and glorified with, with the Lord. So when it says it now saves you, when I've read that and I thought about it, it means that to me baptism is a one-time event, but I think it still does this continual process. It does something to you continually. Um, but what does it do? It says not as a removal of dirt from the body, so it's not like it's literally physically washing dirt off of you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. So it's appealing to God of something that's in us. I think it's appealing to God of uh, the fact that we have been justified, that we exercise faith in Christ, that we're born again. So, I think what it's saying is, he's telling these believers, you've been baptized. This is an appeal to God that you've been washed, you know, you're clean by the Holy Spirit. Um, so, I think the baptism does continue throughout the life of the believer to sanctify them throughout time. And uh, Reformed often talk about the sacraments and the word and the preaching and 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 fasting and prayer and all that as means of grace. And these are all means whereby the benefits of redemption are applied to the believer. So, there's different aspects of it. Like I said, justification, regeneration, baptism. As far as baptismal regeneration, I don't think, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. I believe that regeneration is completely the monergistic work of God, meaning it's unilateral. Uh, that's another big word. <laughs> Let me think of something smaller. It's work, it's a work of God alone in the heart of 
someone. He has to change your heart first before you can believe. So it precedes faith in Christ. And this is because of um, the view of Scripture where men are born corrupt, we're born in sin, we're born rebellious against God. So before we can even believe, something has to happen to us first to want to believe, to be able to believe. So God has to regenerate us first, and then we can exercise faith. So, And also as a Baptist, as a Reformed Baptist, I believe that baptism is not suitable for someone who has not exercised faith yet. Um, Presbyterians, they have their covenant theology that believes that you should baptize infants because they are in the new covenant community as children of believers. They don't believe that that imparts salvation to the child. It gra- It's a sign of salvation, but it doesn't mean they necessarily have what that sign signifies. Whereas with Reformed Baptists, we see the new covenant as including only believers based on Hebrews 8. It says that the law will be written on their hearts. They will know God. You, know, you won't have to t- say to your neighbor, know the Lord, because all will know the Lord. So they will all know the Lord salvifically. They have remission of sins. And these are signs that this is a believer. So the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Old Covenant had a mixture of believers and non-believers. New Covenant, believers only. So that's why we believe that, that's boiling it down very roughly, but that's why we believe that baptism and Lord's Supper are for believers only. There's always going to be the false believer, of course. So once you discover someone's a false believer and they're partaking of the, the ordinances or sacraments, however you want to call it, when they're partaking of those... Um, De facto, meaning that they're partaking of them, but they don't have right to these de jure, meaning they don't have the right to these ordinances, but they are partaking of them. Once you discover a false believer is partaking of them unrightfully, that's when they should be called to repentance or thrown out of the church, if that makes sense. So ideally, only new new covenant believers would partake of the ordinances, but we know in reality things get messy and that's not really how it works out. But we try to preserve that as much as possible. Um, I probably went in much more detail than I should have, but... But I think these passages like 1 Peter 3.21, I think it's important because we have to deal with this. What does it mean baptism now saves you? I don't think it regenerates you, but I do think it sanctifies you. Uh, I don't think I think that was all I wanted to really mention. What has changed experientially in partaking of the sacraments or ordinances of your Christian churches versus how you experience them in the LDS church that you would like to share? Um, for example, are they administered differently? Is there a difference in how you prepared for baptism and continue to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper or communion? How often are they served? What is the atmosphere, frame of mind, the manner of how they are distributed, etc., in your churches? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was such a, it was a giant change from being Latter Day Saint because you know, I mean, I'll talk about baptism first of all. There was nowhere near the amount of preparation. I mean, for instance, in the in the Mormon Church, I had to wait eight years to turn a certain age to be able to get baptized, and you know, as soon as I became Christian, I mean. They were okay with me getting baptized as soon as I confessed Christ. You know, the bishop ended up meeting with me. Uh, not the bishop. Gosh, my formates. The the pastor. You know, ended up meeting with me after kind of going through some some lessons with me. But you know, me, I guess understanding all the particulars wasn't a prerequisite to me getting baptized. You know, faith in Christ was the prerequisite, and it was so different because. You know the whole the whole congregation was there watching me get baptized and and they had me just give a little you know like talk to the audience for a minute before I got baptized too so it was all all quite different and uh, I mean there was a drum roll when they baptized me because I was going to a you know one of those churches with a band initially and yeah I mean they just basically had me sit in a a vat of water. And then they're like, you know, do you 
uh, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I'm like, yes. And then they just put me under. And it was, you know, pretty straightforward to the point and simple. When it came to taking communion, you know, it was definitely done a lot less. I think it was about a once a month thing. And it wasn't during the normal service. It would typically be in the evening, like first Wednesday night. You know, they would do the Lord's Supper then. And I thought it was really interesting that, you know, instead of it being passed to us, we would go up to a table and, and get our um, our crack our cracker and, and grape juice. And then it kind of just changed depending on the church I was going to as well, because we visited quite a few. But, you know, there was one where they did pass it. Um, and it kind of triggered me. But then I was like, you know what, I actually do like this um, as well. But I think, and I already mentioned it earlier, but there's definitely a difference in how I viewed both of those things. Because for me, you know, in the LDS Church, being baptized is I'm making a covenant with God. I'm making a bunch of promises that, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep. And then I'm going to be extra condemned because I sinned against the greater light. Um, But in Christianity, it was a, a public announcement that I was making that I had accepted Christ and I had given him my life, and and same thing with communion. You know, I, it used to be a big, big guilt thing for me. You know, like, oh, am I really worthy enough to take this? Or it would be the opposite effect. I'd be taking communion, sitting there thinking, man, I'm so righteous. You know, I definitely have earned the right to take this communion, and now it's not about earning anything. It's uh, it is a symbol of what Christ has done for me while I was still a sinner, something that I am not worthy of, and yet I'm able to take it because it is just, it's a symbol of the gospel. I think that's all I really have to say about it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so how about you, Paul? Yeah, so several things to touch on here. I talked a little bit about, you know, my LDS baptism at age eight and how uh, I kind of likened that in, a, in an essay that I wrote as an adult to going to the Northwest Multipurpose Center for swim lessons when I was a kid and going back into the locker room with my dad and, and going into the sauna, you know, and sitting around. And <laughs> I, I think when I talked about the sauna and, and uh, likened, you know, my LDS baptism to, to joining the club, Matthew, you, you seemed a little uncomfortable. You're like, okay, so you joined the club because I was talking about, you know, like old dudes in the sauna with nothing but a towel wrapped around them. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to kind of clarify my thought there. So it it was just similar when I went to the tabernacle to get baptized at age eight. You know, everybody at the LDS church, it's, it's arbitrary, right? You, I mean, it wasn't for you, Matthew, because you, you didn't get baptized and think until you were 10, right? But most Latter-day Saint youth do it whenever their stake is having their, their baptism week. And you just go and do it with a bunch of other kids who have turned eight. And it's just this kind of arbitrary date that you do it. And, um, of course you go and you, you talk to the Bishop and they, they ask you the, the baptismal questions, you know, which you could, I, I suppose you could say is sort of like a profession of faith, but, um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a ritual that you go through. And I think a lot of kids just do it right without really thinking too much about why they're doing it. Um, I, I commend you for when, you know, when you were, younger, as you mentioned in our intro tonight, talking about baptism to your parents and, and asking if it was something that, that was needed. Um, because 
for me, it, it really was just kind of joining the club. All the other kids in my class from school and, and from the ward were doing it. And so that's what you did. Um, but as a, as a Christian coming out of the LDS church, I gave a lot of thought to, you know, what now do I do I be baptized again? Because even though like when I was a kid, it was like joining a club and I didn't give much thought to it. As I grew older in the LDS church, of course, I looked back on it like, oh, that's that's when I decided to follow Jesus, right? It was kind of the way I viewed it. And I even went and talked to my pastor, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five months after we had started attending church uh, there and and had a conversation with him about baptism. And he asked me if I'd been baptized before and, you know, was it uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit and I told him, you know, yes, it, it was after that that model. Um, it was when I was age eight, and that I kind of viewed it as the time when I began following Christ. And he told me, oh, you know, he said other pastors may not tell you this, he but he said, but you know, if that's the way you, you view it in your heart, then um, then I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you having to be rebaptized. And I thought about that for a while and I, you know, I went away from that meeting and thought, oh, that's cool. You know, I, I don't have to be rebaptized. You know, this, this church recognizes my Mormon baptism. That's pretty cool. Um, but as I thought about it and I, and I studied more, you know, the Bible and, and realized, you know, that as a Latter-day Saint earlier in my life, I really wasn't worshiping the same God that I was beginning to worship now. Um, and I certainly wasn't worshiping Jesus in the way that I was beginning to now. So I realized I had a different view of God than I had as a Latter-day Saint. And that really made me want to, that that and the, the drastically different view of salvation and how salvation is a work of God and realizing that God had brought me to that point um, completely by his grace and not by anything that I had done. Uh, it really made me want to seek true baptism. So it was a year and a few, a couple of months after we had started attending a Christian church that I, I went forward and was baptized with my son. And I remember, I remember thinking, you know, oh, this, you know, will they, will they allow me to baptize my son? I don't, I'm not a pastor. You know, I don't have authority. You know, I'm still learning a lot about, you know, Christian views of authority and, and who can baptize and that kind of thing. And so um, it really kind of surprised me that, you know, when I when I emailed our pastor and said, you know, my son and I would like to be baptized, um, you know, and I asked him, you know, who who can baptize my son? And, and he was like, well, I, I can baptize you and, and you can baptize your son. And I was like, "What? How does that work?" I'm like, you know, I mean, it, it just wasn't computing in my mind, you know, because of the whole LDS view of priesthood. So, um, but it was kind of a kind of a cool thing to to do. And so, um, you know, the, it's funny attire. You know, uh, when you get baptized, you know, when I was when we were LDS, of course, everybody dresses all in those white jumpsuits, right? Um, the uh, church that I was attending uh, had was going through a transition in, in lead pastors. And so there were, there were lots of changes taking place in the first few years that we were attending there. Um, and, and attire during baptism was one of them. So that like they had white uh, baptismal robes that you would put on, put on. So that when, 
when my son and I were baptized, that's what we did. And then like a few months later, they changed to wearing like the people would bring like shorts and like they would get a t-shirt that said forgiven. Right. Which I thought was kind of cool. I remember thinking, man, I didn't get a t-shirt. But, but, but then I was like, you know, I could probably, I can just go to the church store and get a t-shirt. Like, <laughs> But it was it was just kind of interesting. Like the the attire wasn't important because you know in the latter day latter day Saint faith they they make a big deal about the white. You know it's all symbolic of of you know this new life, this being being washed clean. And so um, you know there just wasn't that uh, that kind of emphasis placed on on the attire. Um, I think it, it's interesting to see you know women baptizing other women and and girls. Um, which I really like to see um, because a lot of times it's, it's meaningful for like, if there's a woman who has uh, discipled another woman um, and, you know, preached the gospel. And then that, that woman is able to baptize her friend that she's discipled. I think that's really kind of cool. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> Are we at that point now? It's coming. <laughs> okay. All, All right. right. Let's see you later, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> nice knowing you. <laughs> I, I told you I was going to hold grudges, so I'm just going to keep talking until it goes down. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll speed it up, though. So, like, our, our church will hold, like, a baptism Sunday once a year, which, um, you know, people who haven't been baptized uh, throughout the rest of the year and have been thinking about it, you know, the for, for several weeks ahead of time, you know, they'll they'll announce that, you know, Baptism Sunday is coming. If it's something that you've wanted to do, you know, if it's something that, that God is leading you to, then, then you know, maybe now is a good time to do it. And it's, it's, it, it's just like the whole Sunday service um, is, is baptisms. You know, there's, there's, there's a sermon. It's usually shorter than, than a normal week, but, um, you know, we've seen, you know, just, hosts of people baptized on those on those Sundays, people who have been attending the church for, you know, a year, two years, and have been wrestling with, you know, do I, should I be baptized? Is, you know, am I, am I going to become a follower of Jesus? And, um, you know, it's, it's really kind of a cool thing. And, you know, Michael, you've mentioned like the, you know, that you were baptized to drums, you know, like that's, that's part of Baptism Sunday, but I've, I've always viewed it as kind of like really, really cool because it's a celebration, right? It almost feels like you're celebrating with heaven, right? For these people and uh, rejoicing and, you know, there's clapping and um, it's really kind of a cool experience to, to see. Um, and I, I would say that experientially, that's that for me has been the biggest difference is that baptism is a celebration. You know, it's a celebration of new life. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done and accomplished. Um, you know, the great work of salvation and that it's that, at, you know, at the church where I attend, that it's that it's treated as a celebration. I, I know, you know, I, I you know, I'll, I'll I'll allow for, you know, Michael's feeling that, that maybe that's a little ostentatious. But um, for me, it's for me, it's um, it's like a celebration. It's like praise. It's like worship um, with regard to communion. um you know that some of the different experiential differences. Um, there's a communion message given by you know an elder or or the worship leader, depending on the week. Um, there's usually like soft music played, uh, maybe just on an acoustic guitar uh, or or a piano. 
um, while the communion is passed, is passed by men and women, um, small squares of, of hard unleavened bread uh, versus, you know, the store-bought, store-bought loaf bread broken up that, that we had in the LDS church, grape, ju- grape juice versus water. Um, and also, it, for me, it's also a time of celebration. I remember in the LDS church, I always felt like I had to, um, I don't know, like put on a, I don't know, just, it just felt, it always felt heavy. You know what I mean? Like, cause I could never, there was never a week where I didn't do something wrong, you know, that I, that I had to sit there and think about, man, I, I messed up royally this week, you know? Um, and it's not that I'm not saying that I don't, that repentance isn't a part of my communion experience now, but it's not, I don't have the feeling of, man, it's, it's really all on me to be perfect each and every week. Um, instead it's, you know, it's it's a time of repentance, but it's also a time of worship and praise to my Lord for what He's done for me. Um, it's it's a different experience than than when I was LDS. You know, Michael, you uh, talked about the, you know how the first time you you took communion in a Christian church, you wept. That I totally resonate with that. I've I've been there. Guys, look out! Brianna's typing something in the chat. Oh no, <laughs> Brianna. <laughs> Okay, that's a little rude, <laughs> Wow. Can't she hear me? Wow. Brianna, go to your room. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so don't uh, pay attention to that. We can go for another hour. <laughs> I think you may cross the line tonight. This will be our last broadcast. <laughs> She's glaring at me right now. <laughs> Well, Matthew, we'll have to find another Michael. Uh, they're replaceable. There's there's a lot of Michaels. It was a very popular name. Yeah, but there aren't very many Michaels who know Craig Hazen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's even a store called Michaels. We could just go there, pick one up. We're good. That's true. Yeah. That's where I came from. <laughs> <laughs> That's where Brianna got you, huh? She just went to the store named Michaels. Yep, she's just like, man, I need a husband. So she went to Michaels and picked me up. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, so yeah, thank you both for for sharing that. It's it's really cool to to hear your guys' experiences. It's it's interesting because we're similar, but not uh, you know slightly dissimilar, but not too dissimilar in our experiences. Uh, for me, um, for my bath, white jumpsuit or whatever. Basically, I just wore black pants and uh, just like a gray shirt or gray button up shirt. But uh, we have a, bap- a baptismal font in our church, which is really nice. So. We they opened that up and they were excited for the baptism. Everyone was excited because there really just aren't that many baptisms in our church. It's it had already been like at least two or three years since they had a baptism, and it was someone who was um, the son of a you know one of the main families in our church. So they hadn't had like a like a someone fresh just randomly off the street getting baptized for a long time. So they were really excited about that, and I was excited too. And I was worried. It was interesting because preparing for my baptism, I was worried that I would you know. That because well I was baptized by immersion after I you know professed faith and all that stuff as a Mormon, maybe it won't feel special as a Christian you know maybe it'll feel like the same thing. So I was looking into it historically. I was like, wonder if I could ask my pastor for like a special you know you know a special something something different to differentiate it. And like one thing, if you go back in the early, I think second or first or second centuries, there was a there's a historical case of people doing trine baptisms. What that what that is is basically. 
dump somebody basically face first into water and you do it three times. So they put them face first in the name of the Father, pull them back up. In the name of the Son, pull them back up. And then in the name of the Holy Spirit, and they pull them back up. So it's kind of like to emphasize the Trinity. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And I was like thinking, maybe I should ask the pastor that. But then I thought, no, um, really, the sim- if we're symbolizing the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you know, that only happened once. So I'll stick, you know, I'll stay with that. Even though Mormons kind of use that same uh, sim- symbolism. So I was preparing for it, and they wanted me to write a short testimony. You know, usually it's like a couple minutes or something like that. But um, yeah, you're right, Paul. They do they do try and baptism. They also do it uh, by immersion too. Maybe not full immersion, but at least dipping. Um, they'll dip babies in the font uh, three times. Anyways, um, so I prepared my testimony for for my baptism, and it was a couple times. It, it was usually supposed to be like two to five minutes. But they said since I'm kind of like a special case and they hadn't had a baptism for a while, I had a really long testimony. So mine ended up being like 10 to 20 minutes. Um, so we were standing in the font. Uh, it's, it's, it was on a stage kind of thing. So we were slightly elevated above the rest of the, the congregation. And so I was reading off my testimony while we were standing in the water. And it's like after about the 20, you know, after 10, 15, 20 minutes of me reading my testimony, you know, you're, you, you start to get the you know, the soggy feet, you know, <laughs> they start to absorb all the water and, you know, so I was like, oh man, pastor's probably freezing to death, so I should finish up. But no, I got a really good reaction, you know, from people who are listening to the testimony and it was a really excellent time just to praise God and thank him for what he'd done to me in my life and bringing me out of Mormonism. And it, 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 it touched me emotionally and spiritually and, and you know, everything. Just thinking back on all experiences I'd had, you know, failed engagements, uh, um, coming home from my mission, envisioning myself being in the church the rest of my life and uh, feeling like a failure and wondering what to do with my life. And then just having God just reach out and grab me and, and pull me to him. It's a really just, it was just awesome to think about, you know, my past experiences up to that point. And uh, something of note that was interesting is usually, you know, the pastor asks several questions. I can't remember all of them. You know, do, do you renounce the devil and all of his works? You know, do you profess faith in Christ? Things like that. So uh, you'd say yes to all those. And then, he said normally what he does is he takes a handkerchief to cover your mouth and nose uh, when he put me under, but he forgot it. <laughs> I'm not sure where he put it. And he didn't realize that until he was already starting to dunk me. So, like, basically, my mouth and face and stuff were just open to the water. <laughs> so, so I got I got some pretty bad water in my nose, but it was fine. Uh, and I could tell he was kind of shocked right right as he was doing it. He realized, oh, no, I don't have it. But, but no, it was a really beautiful service, and um, uh, it, was, it was on a Sunday, so... It was at the beginning of the day, so we we had a service. Then we ended that service short to to do the baptism, and then we had lunch break, and it was great just to fellowship with people. and And after I was baptized in water, uh, so I stood before the congregation, and uh, the pastor uh, he didn't lay hands on my head, but he kind of put his hand on my shoulder, and then we bowed in prayer, and thanking God uh, for for bringing you know bring me to Him for joining me to the church and then so they, they asked to vote from the membership you know if they would accept me into the church and if they voted unanimously yes so then i was allowed to be a member of the church and so that was just a really special moment because i had been preparing for literally years like i think i i had been studying baptism you know i was trying to go back and forth i wasn't sure if i wanted to be join a presbyterian church or a baptist church and i'd studied covenant theology and on the differences between presbyterianism and reformed baptist and when i kind of came to that decision that I wanted to stay in the Reformed Baptist Church in 2017, around the early summer. It was like right before I went to my internship. Uh, I said to the pastor, hey, I'd like to learn, you know, I'd like to join the church. And I thought it would be like maybe a couple months time, you know, waiting, you know, a few months of preparation. 
and he, he started off by saying, you know, it's going to be a while. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know how long it was going to be. It, it ended up being over two years, I think. So I started meeting with my pastor. We started going over the London Baptist Confession. Uh, I read a lot. We talk, We I'd meet over at my pastor's house for, you know, all those months. We took breaks because of my internship and other reasons. Um, so... I felt like that was long. It was probably it was partially due to my internship, so so it probably would have been probably more than a year preparation time. But anyways, it was it was worth it in the end to finally be baptized. Um, I was worried, you know. I had kind of like at the last moment, I had these thoughts, like LDS thoughts, like you guys mentioned. You know, you think about, oh, am I worthy of this? Maybe I have things I need to repent of. Maybe there's things that I haven't overcome yet that I need to repent of before I can be baptized. And then I just remembered that, you know. Do I trust Christ? And it's like, you know, obviously, yes, of course I put my faith in Christ. I trust him. I trust that he's my only righteousness before God, that that uh, his work on the cross is all I have to trust in for my salvation. And so, you know, worrying about whether I'm good enough or I deserve baptism or to join the church, it's really not the right questions to ask. It says, do, do you put all your faith in Christ to save you? I think that's what we need to remember. And so I just kept reminding myself of that, and reading and preparing, and it was really a wonderful event. And the pastor thanked me and uh, and that he felt spiritually edified, so I was really grateful for that entire experience. And I think back, I try to think back on my baptism a lot, um, not as like the moment where I was saved, because I feel like I was saved when I put my tr- faith in Christ. But I do look back on it similar to how Lutherans do, in the sense that there are promises that God gives to His people, and I think that baptism is kind of a way of just confirming that that God God promises that He will be our God and that He. He'll, you know, he'll always be there for us, and so it's kind of like a reconfirmation of that from when you're justified through faith. He kind of reconfirms that in baptism, in a sense. And so, if I ever feel doubts, you know, like what, you know, am I even a Christian? Sometimes, you know, like I, I, I've said that I don't really doubt that much, but there are thoughts that come across my mind, and I think, no, I trust in Christ. You know, I've been baptized into Christ, as Romans six says, and I, and I trust in Him alone. So uh, He's my Savior, and and uh, I trust in Him. And as far as uh, the Lord's Supper, it's similar to the LDS church where um, we have bread. There's 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 people that have a gluten allergy, so we have gluten-free bread. It's not my favorite, but you know, I'm just excited to have the Lord's Supper at all. Um, so we have a big loaf, and then we, we pray, and uh, um, I guess you could say we bless it, and then we distribute it amongst the, the congregation. The deacons usually pass that around. Deacons, for LDS that are wondering, deacons are not 12-year-olds in, in Christian churches. They're usually adults. So, um, usually. usually, yeah. So, uh, so the adult deacons would pass around the, the, the bread, and then we hold it in our hand until we're done finishing the hymn. And then we all consume the bread all at once. So, I really like that because, you know, you really feel like it's a communal act, like you're all fellowshipping together. You're all taking it at the same time. You're all rejoicing in Christ. And... I, and repentance is part of it, I think, like like you mentioned, Paul. But, you know, when I was LDS, it was more just like going through a checklist of like all the sins I committed that week. And I'm like, man, was this bad enough to keep me from the Lord, you know, from the sacrament? And, uh, you know, should I repent of that? Or maybe I shouldn't take it this week. Or maybe I'll just wait a week or two. You know, it's like it's constantly thinking about yourself, you know, worrying about me and my sins. And am I good enough? Do I deserve it? But really, it's focusing on Christ. And that's and that's what we should be focusing on. And uh, we don't we don't take wine. We take grape juice. I'm not a stickler about that, you know, that doesn't bother me. Um, and we do it the same way. We pass the cups around and we take it all together uh, after we sing a hymn. And it's a really special experience to have that and to drink it together and to remember Christ's body and blood that he shed for us. And and 
like I said, the Reformed view is that we believe that sacramentally you're being re- re- you're being united to the benefits of the body and blood of Christ. So his body is in heaven, and he's at the right hand of God and on his throne. But when we're when we're partaking of the sacrament, we're being spiritually communing with Christ, and all the benefits of his body and blood are also given to us, you know, through sanctification and strengthening our faith. And it's just a wonderful experience to think that, you know, we're it's not it's not just a past tense thing where Christ died on the cross and I'm to me I'm just thinking back to what he did. It's thinking, okay, Christ is in my life right now. He's he's intervening in my life right now. He's granting me grace. He's giving me the strength I need to get through each and every day. And he he's conforming me more into his image and, and you know, we fluctuate always in our walk with Christ, but I think that these are means of grace that do strengthen us uh, in the faith. Um, Good stuff. Yeah, that's all I have to say. I was thinking maybe, is there, I don't know, I was thinking maybe of like a short thing, a message to Latter-day Saints. Did you? Did either of you have messages you wanted to leave with the, the listeners, whether they're Latter-day Saints or non-Latter-day Saints? Yeah, I think, um, so just to quick, share a quick experience and then, you know, something I would I would share or challenge them to think about. Um, so shortly after we left the LDS church, um, I went down to Dallas to visit my brother. He was having, um, his daughter, uh, christened. Um, no, I guess this was a different, this was a different trip. Sorry. Um, but I went down to Dallas to visit my brother and we, we attended church with him at 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 his Lutheran church where he, where he goes. And, um, they were, uh, you know, taking the Lord's Supper and, 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 and Matthew, I think you uh, mentioned that, you know, you wouldn't have a problem, you know, taking the Lord's Supper. And this, this was shortly after I had left the LDS church. Um, and, you know, I was sitting there with my mom and my dad, you know, listening to, you know, the sermon and then, you know, the, the, the time came to, to take the Lord's Supper and uh, I went forward to take it. And, um, I remember my mom, when I came back and sat down by her, um, she was weeping and, you know, we talked about that afterwards and, um, you know, it was painful for her to see, uh, you know, both of her sons, um, you know, partaking of, uh, a Lutheran rite when, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, she viewed that as not, uh, a valid, uh, expression of the Lord's Supper, and it was, you know, she told me it was very painful for her. Um, and I would just, you know, I would just ask Latter-day Saints, you know, why, why would that be a painful thing? You know, if Latter-day Saints, uh, as they are really want to do recently, more so than, than prior generations of Latter-day Saints, but if Latter-day Saints are wanting to be recognized as uh, just another Christian denomination, why would it be painful for someone who had left the Latter-day Saint faith to partake in the Lord's Supper with other believers, unless there are differences that are so serious that they are viewed as necessitating a break in communion. And I would suggest that there are doctrinal differences between the Latter-day Saint faith and historic Christianity that that are serious enough that, that they necessitate a break in communion. And, and therefore, you know, I, I understand why it was un, why it was painful for my mom, um, and we you know we talked about that. But uh, 
you know, I, I think it's one of those situations that, that, that points up that there are major differences. Um, so I just would ask Latter-day Saints to consider that. I think if, if I was going to say anything to Latter-day Saints, it would just be to, uh, I, I would just challenge you to take a, a deep look at yourself and, and your beliefs, especially with the saving ordinances and the covenants, and knowing that, that God is a jealous God. Is there an imbalance in your life? You know, I want you to ask yourself, are the ordinances and the covenants that you're keeping and that you value, are they covering up um, the grace of Jesus Christ? And are they covering up the need that we have for for him as a person and and his saving grace? I think I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that just needs to really be uh, considered. So that would be my challenge. Yeah, you both said it great. I'm trying to think if there's anything I would add. Hmm. Well, I, I always point whenever whenever I talk to Latter Day Saints, I try to I try to go over three topics: who is God, who is Christ, what is the gospel. And for me, what really convinced me that we don't need special priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood, Aaronic priesthood, whatever, and we don't need special ordinances or sacraments to gain access to Christ is the fact that just read Romans, just Romans one through five, so so clear. Um, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It, it was through his faith that God justified him. And James 2 is not speaking of um, justification in the sense of um, being right with God. He's, he's, he's criticizing those who claim to have faith, but they have no works. And such people have a false faith. It's not a true faith because true faith will always be followed by good works. So I would just recommend that you read those chapters prayerfully and just think, okay, if I can be justified or declared righteous through faith apart from works, do I need baptism, confirmation, temporal ordinances, all that to be right with God? We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.
Make my home in you.